0: This
1: is Democracy,
0: a podcast that explores the interracial,
2: intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. Uh, We have a very special episode uh, this week. Uh, We always have uh, extraordinarily interesting guests on, but I think uh, today we have one of the most interesting guests that I've had the opportunity to meet in many years, uh, Ambassador Samantha Power. Uh, She was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations for President Obama. She was also a close member of President Obama's national security team, working on multilateral affairs as well as national security affairs and... um, human rights issues, and she was also part of President Obama's campaign. She has been teaching for many years at Harvard, but she's probably still most famous for her first book uh, called The Problem from Hell, which to many of us scholars and activists and policy people really opened our eyes to uh, issues of genocide and uh, American uh, negligent responses throughout our history, really awakened many of us to these issues. She has now just published a new memoir that I had the uh, fortune to finish reading last night, uh, which is really about her life story uh, and uh, a parable in some ways for American foreign policy and the changes in our international system through her uh, experience as an immigrant, as an intellectual, as a policymaker, and as a teacher, and as a mother. Uh, So it's really wonderful to have you on, Samantha. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for being here. Uh, Before we turn to Ambassador Power, we have, of course, our scene-setting poem
0: from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, Zachary, what's the title of your poem? To the Rest of Humanity. Well, let's hear it. I think I first wondered about diplomacy, driving on a dirt road near Agra, and cows bathing in the river, and I think I thought of it as that, bouncing between the seat cushions and the tea stands and dew grass on the side of a highway, knowing the ancient fort on the other side of the ridge, and which water is safe to drink on plastic chairs clustered on the lawns of humidity. International feeling between the Japanese Toyota, the American tea drinker, and the Uttar Pradesh afternoon breaking over the hills like sunrise. But at four o'clock when you still have to get to Jaipur before dark, speeding through the trees like you're flying into Rajasthan. And I think we are all like this at one point in our lives, the Hindu-Jewish great-great-grandson of immigrants sinking into endless metropolises and Taj Mahals like the solid wonderment of adolescence finding meaning. And I can't tell, but sometimes I feel like Salim Sinai and Midnight's Children, like I can fill my generation of humanity like the typeface of my life. And sometimes I'm not sure if it's Comic Sans or Times New Roman, but we are drawn to each other as if by candlelight. And often I wonder if we are like every other generation, the lost ones and heroes, the saintly ones and the ones tearing through decency with giant shears. And I bet we all want to find some token of goodwill in the middle of the night in the dumpsters behind the high school to hand over to birds or to the wind, knowing we can find someone like us. Hmm.
2: What is your poem about, Zachary?
0: Well, my poem is really about uh, human connections and how, particularly as Americans uh, and people who come from all over the world, we, we feel like the world is very small, like we know so many different cultures. But at the same time, we often get caught up in our daily lives and what's going on in our own bubble. And we, f- we forget the connections that we have to other people and other people's suffering.
2: Hmm. Do you agree,
1: Samantha? That we forget? (laughs) Um, I think, first of all, Zach, it's a beautiful poem. Thank you. Um, And uh, it's an amazing way, I think, to remind people of the humanity that sometimes get lost when we talk about big geopolitical and strategic issues. And so to to, um, bring it back down to earth, to a single individual encountering multiple cultures, um, it's exactly the right way to do it. I mean, I think certainly, you know, when people feel fear and um, dislocation as is occurring more and more in different parts of the world, um, it's harder to feel that that shared humanity. I remember when I was maybe a little bit older than your son, somebody pointed out that all of us have kind of different circles of identity. So now I have the identity, as you noted, as a mother, as you and I are both professors, both Americans, I'm an immigrant, you know you have all these I'm a Red Sox fan. we've all these yes. circles Boo. <laughs> It's okay <laughs> you know no one has to gloat we're done. we're toast um, but 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 at at times of tumult or um, scarcity, your your circles of identity can shrink to just one yes. Um, yes. and you can be only. American, or only a Democrat, or only a Republican, or only a Catholic, in my case. Um, and and that's, I think, what's happening in a, in a lot of different parts of the world.
2: And and how did you come to these issues? You talk about this a lot in your memoir, uh, but I guess the question I came away from was, what what drove you in, internally to these issues?
1: Well, I don't think that any of us really know. <laughs> I think it's a swirl of uh, factors. I, I try to play it straight and just say, kind of, in a way, here here's my story, here's what happened, here's how it unfolded. So, you know, here here are the circumstances that I lived with in Ireland when I was a child with, with a father who was incredibly loving, but also an alcoholic. And, and so I describe, I, I think people hadn't really expected that I, they were going right. to uh, go with me in my memoir back to a Dublin pub. But It's that's a very the, moving part of the memoir. Thank you, I mean. thank you. Um, but to start there, and then I came to America and, of course, had all of the delight that a child would have in encountering you know, the biggest of everything that I'd ever seen in my life. I, mean, I came from this tiny country of Ireland and hadn't traveled much as a kid, so it was really the exposures were incredible, and I mastered the new lingo in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and for me sports became my calling card, a way of fitting in. And I became the master of baseball statistics, um, <laughs> but I completely date myself because I moved to America in 1979 when the Pirates won the World Series in Pittsburgh. And I know even to this day, I have I know, all- basically no baseball history prior to 1979 and but then and then i have the, the, like a lot of people i have this sort of 15 20 year period where try me um and then it tapers off a little bit when i'm in government but um but anyway but that the you know the trying to fit in um seeing america both as an insider and somebody who fully embrace this new experience and the opportunities that are so un- i think still even unique to this country at the same time, being able to see America a little bit from the outside, yes. Uh, yes. you know, still having such close family connections abroad, going back every summer, having my cousins and other family members giving me grief about whatever the you know a particular American president might have been doing at a given time. Um, and also probably seeing the world a little bit through the eyes of a small country and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, you know, of just the idea, Biden used to say this, Joe Biden, um, when I worked with him at the White House, you know, that his mother had told him, to you know, you're better than no one, Joe, and no one's better than you. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, to believe that America has some amazingly um, distinctive features, and I know that from having traveled the world, from having lived abroad, but then also to know that within every country are individuals um, who have so many of the same aspirations and and may find themselves blocked. And then that raises questions, of course, about what America's responsibility is to itself and what it is also to the world as a whole. Sure, sure.
2: And as you know better than anyone, I mean, there are a lot of tensions surrounding discussions of human rights. One of them, we'll talk about a few of these tensions. One of them is the tension between uh, the urge to connect, as Zachary discussed, with humanity and as you've discussed so eloquently, uh, but also the, the warning against condescension. And you've been, I think, remarkably uh, skillful at avoiding that latter problem. How have you done that? How have you connected with other societies without without bringing a a white man's burden to them? Yeah. Well, it's it's I haven't actually heard the question framed that way before,
1: or even thought about it in those terms. But yeah, the peril of that of of I I think it's both condescension and or some kind of potential superiority complex. You know that we are. Um, I mean, some even put it in divine terms, you know, that we have some unique insight into God's will or into natural law or into what other people in other countries uh, seek for themselves. And I do think it's a very perilous piece of business when you start thinking that way. On the other hand, I think, you know, it sounds a bit cheesy, I suppose, uh, and, and a bit po- sort of formalistic, but we do have these international instruments they were imperfect from the very start, sure. just as our own national instruments were imperfect in terms of who was at the table. But there, if you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's a pretty good synopsis of if you, I think, just from traveling the world a fair amount, just if you talk to people, what their aspirations are. You know, if it if it merely had the right to due process or to be free of torture, and didn't have the whole kind of corpus on. Uh, healthcare and education and and, uh, clean water or, or, you know, the decent standard of living, uh, you know, and all of these have been fleshed out over time. But I I think there's a safe harbor in those international instruments, in part because they're no one's perfect national approximation Mm -hmm. of national rights and sensibilities. And so... I think that's that's a safe bet, and then just I think my journalist background, because I, I be as I tell in the book, I became a a, a journalist in my early twenties, at a, still a very formative age. I hope I'm still at a formative age. I'm not <laughs> sure, but uh, but uh, but as a journalist, just getting in that habit of being a bit suspicious of officialdom, and just wanting to get out and about, sure. and to. To understand or to hear from people firsthand, kind of how things are affecting them and what those aspirations are, and not not assuming too much from far away. But that again, I, I sure. don't want to pretend that you have some uh, Gallup, <laughs> uh polling, I hope not. you know, <laughs> sort of thing in your head where you can go and do a per, you right. know and, and sort of ascertain right. in some. In some really tight way, you know, people's aspirations. Is, it's such a general uh, concept, but it, but at least that curiosity, um, and then and then just the more time you spend abroad, I think just to see, that nobody wants to be dealing with corrupt officials. Everybody right. wants to be able to get rid of officials who aren't delivering, you know, social and economically or. Uh, you know, again, corruption-free governance in their neighborhoods. Um, Nobody wants to be tortured. Everybody, again, wants to be able to hold accountable those who would commit those kinds of crimes. So there is that, you know, what one's experience in the world tends to graft onto the principles that were enshrined, you know, at the time of the UN's founding.
2: Well, and I think you're very honest about your belief that there are certain universalisms, you know, one being the prevention of genocide, uh, among many others. At the same time, what I really admire in your work is you also are front and center, honest, as you were a few minutes ago, about also believing in American exceptionalism. And and the Declaration on Human Rights does grow out of the New Deal. It's a New Deal document. Eleanor Roosevelt's a key person behind it. Uh, So it's interesting how one has to balance the universalisms with, with being an, 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 an American exceptionalist, right? Well, as you know,
1: she had a hell of a time. It may have been her sort of aspirational document and certainly would have been FDR's. It aligns, I think, with both dimensions of his agenda, civil and political and social and economic, but politically and culturally. Sure you know we're not there we don't we don't we don't have our supreme court weighing in on the bill of rights in a manner that um you know renders social and economic rights justiciable in the way that we do the other half of the universal declaration so you know for many she was proving herself a socialist uh... you know and and a radical and with you know mccarthy was not that long thereafter in those days to put forward such a um... an ambitious social and economic agenda alongside the more traditional American Absolutely. precepts was was pretty pretty courageous.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so one of the other tensions I wanted us to explore uh, is the tension between human rights activism and policymaking. And you're one of the very few people uh, who's had the, the good fortune to be a, a major human rights activist and an influential policymaker. How you were able to do that is explained very well in your memoir. I'm not going to give that away. People have to read the book to understand how you That's made That's smart. That I think
1: I'm giving too much away in these interviews. Because,
2: <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're always more of, a, read the book in yeah, order exactly. to learn the... Exactly. No, it's, I think actually one of the many strengths of your memoir is you, you tell that story in compelling ways, and it has something to do with a man named uh, Barack Obama, but they, again, they can read the memoir for that. Um, but how did you manage this tension uh, between uh, these very clear, persuasive, compelling Uh, human rights aspirations that you embody in your work, in your journalism, in your writing, uh, and the realities of making policy in a world that's much messier where the United States has many other commitments and and many reasons for restraint, even when it knows the right thing to do?
1: Well, I guess uh, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first, because I had written a book, A Problem from Hell, where I'd interviewed hundreds of U.S. officials about their own experience, it's not as though... I went into the U.S. government expecting me as the president's human rights advisor to be the most welcome person in every meeting. You know, I, I, I had a pretty good sense of how much gravity was cutting in different directions. And that's what had drawn me to Barack Obama and Barack Obama to me in that he was interested in seeing structurally if there were things we could do to create a more fulsome and comprehensive discussion of the range of interests and values uh, that, that should be and can be at the heart of our, our politics and our policy so it wasn't some rude awakening in in that dimension. I think then though the the, the of course the the battles some of which I detail in the book um, you know for example, whether to recognize the Armenian genocide which is something mm-hmm. President Obama had as a senator and as a presidential candidate committed to doing, or the case of Syria which is the most um, egregious and 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 brutal, uh, set of crimes that, that happened while we were in office, you know, being in a situation where you're advocating a set of measures maybe to push the envelope a little bit, and, and, but doing so in the wake of the war in Iraq, the invasion of Iraq, mm-hmm. and at a time of tremendous domestic fatigue with and, and, and concern that any even small measures would lead at some point to American entanglement, I mean, again, none of this came as a surprise. I think the way that I c- carried myself in government, and I hope I continue to carry myself now that I'm out, is is relatively consistent. I mean, to have the same aspirations, to look to see what the right tools are to pursue those aspirations, to take into account other interests. I'm an American mm-hmm. first. I'm an American citizen. I'm serving at the pleasure of the, uh, the president. And so, you know, the only... So major difference, I suppose, between me and people who come at some of these questions with a different perspective is that I think over time, uh, advancing, promoting the cause of political reform and economic reform, fighting corruption, promoting human rights, creates more stability in the world, not doing so as was the policy of the United States for decades in the Middle East doesn't change the aspirations of people mm-hmm. in those societies. They still want the same thing, you know, they want to be able to feed their families and have a better future for their kids and grandkids than the one that they had growing up. And so all that ends up happening is like the Isaiah Berlin, right. you know, in the context of nationalism, it's sort of, a, you know, if you, if you bend and if there's no give in a society and no accountability, you end up getting not evolution, but but revolution. And so, you know, my view is as a strategic matter, there's there's actually, at least in the Obama administration, there was something of a consensus that it was in our long-term interest to promote human rights and to advance political reform. But when push came to shove, if you're a general and you're interested in securing instant counterterrorism right. cooperation, right. that longer-term interest in reality, um, you know, doesn't count for as much as can we get that unit deployed to Mosul tomorrow to give us what we need and I just continue to make the case because I think too often we privilege the short term and then we end up in with the precisely the situation we had in Iraq where we were so reticent about pushing the cause of political reform with Prime Minister Maliki that we ended up having a situation that where the sectarianism got so intense that having vanquished al-Qaeda having orchestrated a surge and cooperated with the Sunni awakening and, and and really putting Iraq on a better footing than it had been in, of course, in the immediate aftermath of the invasion and giving Iraqis a chance to have their own democratic election, the human rights abuses carried out by the government ended up driving so many people in Iraq into extremist uh, positions that they hadn't taken before and indeed ended up, right. uh, you know, constituting the backbone for ISIS. So what can seem like It's kind of good for our security in the short term, and and again, there are dozens of examples like that. Not everything produces a a long-term security setback of that magnitude, but again, it's always tempting to sort of put off that difficult conversation about internal practices, and yet internal practices so often... Uh, if they're if they're abusive, you know, can be the incubator for things that end up coming back to haunt us and and the countries in question.
2: And Isaiah Berlin is a great reference because so much of what he argues right is that we have to balance competing interests and competing goods or competing evils in some cases. Uh, I think what is striking though, and this is this is actually a, a, a question out of praise, is is to see your evolution because certainly your career as a journalist was very much about um, being somewhat universalistic and and somewhat. Um, strong in advocating for human rights above all else. Uh,
1: I don't think... I mean, I think A Problem from Hell is very consistent with the work that I did in government in the sense that it's about a toolbox. You know, it's not a sort of one-size-fits-all. Um, policymakers... I mean, my lament in in A Problem from Hell was, was quite modest in the sense that it was, how is it that atrocities just don't rise in the government to warrant their own senior discussion? And if they'd risen... You know who knows what anybody would have decided at the highest level. I mean, in Bosnia, I thought the use of force was necessary. You know, because every other tool in the toolbox had been tried, and I, you know, being on the ground, I could see just the sort of limits of the capabilities sure. of the of the perpetrator. And so, again, I was too young to have the opinions I did. I think, or to probably, in retrospect, as I and I try to show this in the book. <laughs> so I did in that instance, but I also think that that was borne out when the united states and nato got involved the war was brought to an end within a couple of weeks with no casualties and so forth for the u.s but it it never deals with the structural forces military force never deals with the structural forces that give rise to crimes of that magnitude in the first place but i think my evolution is different than the one that you you okay. describe i think it's much more about how to do it it's not i mean my my I never I never thought that there was a categorical imperative to do this or that right. or the other thing other than have a meeting, open the toolbox and then figure out from a sure. consequentialist standpoint which tools should be employed. But I think by by being working first as a journalist, then uh, you know as an activist, then on a political campaign, where I learned a lot of things about what not to do, <laughs> you know, in the Senate office, in the executive branch as a diplomat, I think what you learn is how to build coalitions inside government and with other countries. You know how to speak to individuals from the vantage point of their equities and their and their interests. And so, is much more about taking the same old vector from that I probably have, have had or been on from the very beginning, but operationalizing it. Um, you know, in in complicated institutions. I mean, how to work with Congress, sure. especially in an era of polarization. Um, You know, what is the right way to establish a partnership with the chairman of the Joint Staff on peacekeeping, for Mm -hmm. example? Like, I might have always thought that peacekeeping Mm -hmm. should be improved, but to figure out how to make that argument effectively with the Pentagon, that was a different language for me.
2: Mm -hmm. So, uh, the doppelganger for Samantha Power wouldn't have criticized uh, a president who did the same things Obama did in Syria?
1: well i get I get into that in the book. I mean, I, I I would have said what I said in government. I didn't There's nothing I would have said outside that I didn't say right. in the media. Maybe my tone would have been a little bit different, less respectful because he fair. wasn't my boss. <laughs> <laughs> but um point. no, I mean, I said, look, when when people like John McCain and the editorial board of The Wall Street Journal were calling for my resignation over Syria, deeming me a hypocrite. I write in the book, you know. Had I been on the outside, I probably would have thought the same of me. Like, how could I be in there? But that said, on the outside, I also wouldn't have been able to know what. As it happens, it was me. But but what what some individual? What they what are they doing internally? Sure. Um, you know, I wouldn't have known about the negotiations I was doing with the Russians to try to get political prisoners out of jail or to get humanitarian aid to parts of the country that were not being reached. Nor would I have known from the outside what again it happens to be me but what an individual um is arguing internally what they're pushing the president to do so you know i don't i don't feel morally compromised i feel heartbroken
2: right right and and i think i mean having an evolving career is a strength by the way Uh, i I have have an evolving
1: career i just think this idea that there's like a, a caricature of who I, I I wish people would actually go back and not not to say that you haven't you probably assigned your courses and do go back and read it, but I think that there's just a caricature of my younger self, yes. which is which is pretty, it's not it's it's pretty true in general of how anybody who uses the word idealism is likely to be pigeonholed. Yeah. And so if I sound a little uh, testy about it, you know, I just sort of feel like, geez, I did spend five years on that book talking about a very elaborate toolbox. And I did spend uh, a a decade talking in consequentialist terms about what various tools, you know, could be applied in particular circumstances. And then I did go into government and, you know, on Syria it's the obvious case in which you see the limits of the toolbox because we used every tool in the toolbox short of military force. So, you know, that in that sense, a problem from hell kind of occupies a safer space because it's never really tested. You know, I can say to you, I, I didn't advocate the U.S. military going into Rwanda, nor would I, six mm-hmm. months after mm-hmm. Somalia. I, and, and, my you know, when I look back on Rwanda, I look at radio jamming and denouncing and expelling the Rwandan ambassador to, you know, to the U.N. But the truth is, as Syria shows... It may well be that you do everything short of the big thing, right. and it, it may mitigate at the margins, but uh, but it may not end, uh, you know, a grave human rights crisis of the magnitude of a Rwanda or a Syria. Nice. And so, in that sense, um, some of those ideas, you know, inevitably, because nothing was done in the face of genocide, or if anything, you, you know, in the case of Rwanda, peacekeepers were pulled out, but the but the larger proposition goes untested. Yes. And yes. so the Obama administration in a way tests it because right. we're actually employing the tools and you see mitigation rather than salvation.
2: That's a very helpful way to think about it. Thank you Zachary, you had a question.
0: Yeah, how do you think we get young people who who've grown up in the United States with this sort of idea of exceptionalism to care about other societies and in international cooperation?
1: Um, well, I think we start with a with an amazing foundation because we are a country of immigrants and we have in our midst people from so many different walks of life. Granted, this is now a a much more contested proposition that we're a nation of immigrants, but you know, no matter what the rhetoric is out of politicians or even how policies change day to day, you just look around. I mean, I I write in the book about uh, helping preside over a naturalization ceremony where our nanny who helped me raise my kids but also was the sole reason I was able to do my job as UN ambassador, um, but she was becoming an American and I looked out at the sea of faces which were so diverse and, you know, the minute they'd sworn in, they were American suddenly. I mean, they—they <laughs> like, I mean, it was just the most, just that sense that their names were now American names. They'd gone from being Costa Rican or you know, Uzbek or, you know, Chinese and, and, and suddenly they were American in that instant. Then I came back to the U.S. mission to the U.N. and I walk in and I look around and it's like the courthouse. It's the same wow. scene. It's the same... It's not a ceremony, but they're, it, it's, it's either immigrants or descendants of immigrants. And so that's one answer, is I feel like, especially your age group, for us to take advantage of the encyclopedias and the culture and the richness and then the connections to those other countries in our midst. But then also, you know, the point I was making earlier um, about how our interests as a country are kind of connected to the fate of people abroad, I don't mean in some kind of, you know, touchy-feely way that can't we all get along and everybody will be so happy here if they're happy there, you know. But just at, at take climate change, you know, the the way in which what China chooses to do with its coal plants fundamentally is going to affect your generation. And even if we can get our act together here in the States, your generation's ability to to grow up in a world, you know, with the same bounty that, that I and your dad grew up with. Um, you know the human rights example, where when when governments are are super repressive and there are radicals around to try to exploit that, how terrorists you know can set up training camps and recruit people, and how that can end up coming back to to hurt us. I think we we and my generation and the generations that came before, we sort of stopped making the case at a certain point. Hmm. We just hmm. we just apart from in our classes, right. you know, we're making the classes. We walk students through the connection between the international order and, you know, American prosperity or the ability to keep the sea lanes open yes, and our ability yes. to do trade. And that happens in the classroom, but in the public imagination, the idea that we're not just connected kind of spiritually because we have a sort of one world, um, you know, Amnesty International candle on our fridge, but like we're connected Practically and pragmatically, um, and so I, I, th- I think young people. There's a reason that they don't, that that's not intuitive anymore. I don't, I don't think that that case has been made. And now look at the Democratic primary debate, and 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 of course as well in parallel the rhetoric, of the Trump administration, and it's no wonder uh, young people don't don't really know why it matters because it's not coming up. I mean Trump is Trump is portraying. The world is kind of out to get us and dangerous and a world of carnage and people are trying to rip us off and then among some progressives there's a concern that when the United States leads it's at the expense of what we do domestically or that it leads inevitably to war and to militarism and so you know I think this question that you pose of of how can young people be convinced that there's a smart humane beneficial Leadership role in the in the world for the United States um, that does a lot more good than harm, you know, for for your generation. I think I think that conversation isn't happening near enough, and 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 young people probably have to help us old fogies <laughs> figure out what the right framing is. Um, you know, those who those of you who are convinced, you know, what is what is the way to 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 hit home? Climate change seems to me a very good place to start because young people are so rightly exercised about that.
2: So, Samantha, we like to close every uh, episode with uh, a discussion about how this uh, historical knowledge that you've shared with us so so brilliantly, how that can be used for positive effect by especially young people listening. We're really trying to show that history can be put into mm-hmm. action. So what is your advice to our young listeners? What should they do, assuming they care about these issues?
1: Um, well, what I find among young people... Zach's question speaks to one dimension, which is, why does what happens over there matter here? So I find that in some. But honestly, in many, many more, I find also a different phenomenon, which is, I'm going to promote human rights. I'm going to grow up and I'm going to promote human rights. Like That's why I'm on the earth. I'm going to make the world better. And I guess my reaction to that, seems to me there are twin perils. The first I think is is a reflection of an overly narrow conception of what's good for Americans or what's good for young people and the second is an overly broad conception of what any one person can do and so my main advice I think a lesson at least from my own miniature history but also I think from history as a whole is know something about something Mm. that if you if you try to fight every battle sometimes you fight you fight none you know you you your ambition can be so large that can that your aspirations can be so easily thwarted because how if you if you have the ambition of promoting human rights everywhere nobody can achieve that, I mean um, it's it's inconceivable. I mean the president of the United States could barely make a dent in an agenda of that magnitude given all the structural forces in the world. So slicing off uh, uh, you know one sliver of of a problem and so when, when I hear. Someone your age say, "I want to. I want to become a human rights lawyer. I want to promote human rights." I'll say, "Who's mm. where? Mm. You know, here. I mean, maybe the homeless community. Uh, you know, in your in your city, those of refugees who are not now getting the welcome that they once had. Is that is that a slice of the human rights problem you can help deal with? Maybe in your own community." Or maybe there's some specific conflict abroad where you want to, you know, ultimately put yourself in a position to learn the language, to know the history of the place in order to be able to make a contribution. But I think that narrowing, which can seem like an accommodation with the status quo, but it's not. It's about, again, figuring out one's own slice of making the world different
2: so being rooted in your larger ambitions in many ways
1: but slicing it down into into bite-sized manageable portions um shrink the change
2: that's great advice zachary does that make sense what do you think do you think young people will be motivated by that
0: well i i i i definitely agree and i think uh young people in many ways in, in reaction to, to what we see in the Trump administration, but just in the sphere of politics today as well, uh, have become even more concerned about these issues and more aware of them than they would be uh, in a more complacent world where we didn't have these threats to as many threats to human rights or if it was something we didn't talk about as much. Great,
2: great. Well, this has been a, a wonderful conversation, and I encourage all of our listeners to read Samantha Power's new book. It really is uh, a very personal, uh, but also very sophisticated exploration of these issues. Very compelling read, and it, it actually, in, in some parts, reads like a novel, even though it's about very serious policy issues. So, congratulations thank on you your book. Much, thank,
1: thank you very much, Jeremy. Thank you for
2: being on with us, and thank you for your poem, Zachary, and thank you for joining us for this is democracy.
1: This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in
0: this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.